0: So, before we get into this episode, I just wanted to let you all know that uh, we had a couple of technical difficulties uh, during the recording. And there will be a couple of points where it seems like the audio slows down a bit, but it picks up again. And I just wanted to let you know about that before uh, you started listening to it. Again, thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. And keep us in your prayers. Thank you. You're listening to Train of Thought, a podcast of the Biblical Christ Research Institute. Today's topic, Key Themes of Liberation Theology, Part 1. Let's get into the discussion. All right, episode six, episode six, we are back. How was your father's day, man?
1: It was awesome, brother. How was yours?
0: I didn't do anything, so that was perfect.
1: Good,
0: good. <laughs> All I did was grill some chicken. That's the only thing I had to do. So
1: I was relax a little go. bit. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you had a good one, man. Yes, sir. So so we're back from our little hiatus because of Father's Day. And we're getting back into liberation theology as it stands in Latin America, but uh we're kinda changing it a little bit. Uh so talked to Duran uh, a little earlier, I think it was yesterday, and uh, I was just thinking about when I was going through the history of uh, liberation theology in Latin America, and I was just like, man, it's like every country in South America and some of Central America is involved in this. Mm-hmm. And as I kept taking notes, and looking at it, and I was like, man, there's no way <laughs> we would be able to cover all of this history—it's just—it's just too much. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, <clears throat> I know that we have posted that the next subject would be history of liberation theology, but we're going to skip that, and we're going to go to the key themes of liberation theology, and <clears throat> we're going to discuss it again from the primary source, and this source is called uh, "Introducing Liberation Theology." by leonardo boff and i'm assuming it's his brother so it's just two boffs on the cover b-o-f-f just like we did when we talked about uh, the the beginning foundation of liberation theology but now we want to get into the themes of liberation theology and after you after you guys listen to this and you hear it um you'll start to see some similarities between Liberation Theology in Latin America and Black Liberation Theology, which is and this is why we wanted to do it like this. We want to make sure that you guys get a foundation foundational understanding of where Black Liberation Theology comes from so that um, when we get there, then there's no surprises, no like, why'd you just jump to that? Why didn't you deal with this? Why didn't you deal with that? So we tried to be very thorough on our podcast and make sure that we logically approach things so that by the time we get where we're going you have enough information and enough of a foundation both biblically and uh theologically and societal wise so that when we get to what we're actually going to address then you're good to go so so we're going to get into this now talk about some of the key themes of liberation theology as uh, is stated in this primary source here that I have in front of me and my, uh, my cohort, my co-laborer in Christ is going to chime in with his insight, you know, whenever he sees fit. So you ready to get into it, brother?
1: Yes, I'm ready. All right, let's do it.
0: So there's about eight themes here. I don't know if we'll get to all of them, but we're going to try. So theme number one, is that a living and a true faith includes the practice of liberation so a living and true faith includes the practice of liberation so they argue here that in order for faith to be true then the faith necessary for salvation in the biblical tradition is not enough for faith to be true in the terms in which it is expressed So they say orthodoxy is not enough, which is correct. Um, So, so far we're in agreement um, with that. So you can't just have orthodoxy, Okay. So we do agree with that. And he says, it is verified or your faith is made true when it is informed by love, solidarity, and a hunger and a thirst for justice. Now, for me, when I read the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter five, I thought it was a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Right. So the, the problem that I have with this is that it's reductionistic. Yes. In other words, they're, for those of you who may not understand what I mean by that, is they're, they're reducing, they're narrowing the category to provide their definition of what they think is needed for faith to be true. But what is actually needed for faith to be true is all righteousness, not just a hunger and a thirst for justice, but a hunger and thirst for righteousness after his Right? So uh, they go on and they talk about James, of course. He says, St. James teaches that faith without good deeds is useless and that believing in the one God is not enough for the demons have the same belief. From James chapter two, he says, "Therefore, orthodoxy has to be accompanied by orthopraxy." And you know, we, you, and I, and uh, the other brothers of the Biblical Christ Research Institute, we always talk about how <clears throat> it's one thing to have a sound orthodoxy, but we need to see some fruit. You know, there there has to it has to be practice behind the orthodoxy or along with the orthodoxy. So again here, I'm in agreement with that. But he says, living in true faith enables us to hear the voice of the eschatological judge in the cry of the oppressed. And so they go to Matthew. <laughs> I see I see the grin. <laughs> they go to Matthew 25. Okay. So let's go to Matthew 25. And uh, I can actually pull it up here. go to Matthew 25 and we'll see what they're talking about here and then brother you could chime in and let me know or let let our listeners know the issue here <clears throat> because they're 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 arguing that living in true faith enables us to hear the voice of the eschatological judge in the cry of the oppressed and of course they only use one phrase I was hungry. (laughs) So again, they, like they did Galatians, they're kind of like ripping certain things out of the actual context. Okay, so I'm going to read Matthew 25, verses 31 through 45, and then you can, you know, come in and share your thoughts. He says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, To the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me then they themselves will also answer saying lord when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you then he will answer them saying truly i say to you to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these you did not do it to me and these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. So, uh, brother, it seems here that uh, if you read the context, it seems like they're kind of pointing to something there, but at the same time, for them to just say that this is having to do with the, the cry of the oppressed... Uh, seems to be lacking in their exegesis. What do you think about that?
1: Absolutely, yeah. And and the issue there is that, you know, for one, you have to improperly define who are the oppressors. But in, in the text before us, uh, the one thing that you see is that Jesus is dealing with the distinction not between a certain group who is just versus undru- unjust, He's not dealing with a distinction between particular ethnic groups and their not so illustrious past versus Mm -hmm. those who may have had an illustrious past. He's dealing with the treatment of those who are joined to him versus those who treated them well. Um, And then in, in that group you have, and then the second group you have those who treated them in such a way so as to cast reproach, slander, and shame on the person of Christ. And so he's dealing with the treatment of the elect versus the non-elect. And you see that because he's dealing with the righteous and how they have demonstrated that they were righteous, not by their deeds, but by their attachment to the one who indeed is righteous based on what he's accomplished on the cross. And for them, he categorizes them as being blessed as those who demonstrated that they had a love, not only for him, but those who represented him. And so there is a singular focus among the people who are identified um, in the very uh, in the very early portions of this text that they treat the king in such a way so as to demonstrate that they belong to the kingdom and not only do they treat the king a certain way they treat the actual king's subjects so the distinction that has to be made is not everyone is uh, in the kingdom and not everyone are the king's subjects and we see that even in the text
0: that's what i was about Uh, to ask you is is this text talking specifically, is it talking in a broad sense of every single person or is it talking about just those who are within the kingdom?
1: Exactly. Yeah. So it's dealing with those who belong to the kingdom versus those who do not. And so the issue at hand is those who treated uh, believers a certain way, or those who treated those who belong to Christ the same way, because they, they do indeed belong to him and therefore they are bearers of his salvation image they are those who are redeemed and purchased and joint heirs of his kingdom mm-hmm. they're treated in such a way so as to be despised by those who will be placed under judgment for that so it's not the temporal sense in which they visited christ in these different scenarios by visiting a general populace and humanity and feeding you know those who are hungry going to visit those who were in prison it's not teaching kind of a social justice paradigm to earn your way into heaven it's teaching that there are those who treated the believers a certain way demonstrating that they were righteous because they held the same affection for them as they would for christ and it took place in uh uh, the analogy that's being pointed here and even the literal sense is that they cared for them according to certain things that were necessary for them to live but then there there are those who rejected the king and so they mistreated the king and his subjects in such a way so as to completely ignore, um, ignore them. And thus they were cast under judgment. You know, he says here, um, he says here that uh, they, they, they belong to the left and that's not the ideological or political left versus the ideological or political right. Mm. It's dealing with the feature of judgment that there are those who are uh, in the ancient uh, understanding of what it meant to be, at the right hand of someone or meant to be placed on the right. Um, As it relates to rulers, it was a place of prominence, power, uh, heirship, inheritance, Mm -hmm. all those things. And yet those who are on the left are demonstrated as not belonging to the very kingdom itself. And so it's not so much that they were guilty of mistreating is that they were guilty of being outside of the kingdom of God itself due to their nature and The effect of that was that they rejected the king and his subjects and in rejecting the king and his subjects they were cast out uh, by judgment into eternal fire and torment so it has nothing to do with if I go to you know visit enough enough prisons because those people are oppressed if I go and open up enough soup kitchens if I join my calls to a people who are determined to be oppressed by society itself And somehow I'm a righteous man. That's not what the Bible teaches. And that certainly this isn't the place to go for that because you see that in their thirst and their hunger and all these things, the difference is righteousness Mm -hmm. that the people who are commended by God did what they did according to his righteous standard, not according to some societal standard that was placed on them. Those who are um, commanded to depart from him are those who join themselves uh, to the cause of self righteousness, especially as we look to this text, because he 's dealing with the people in Israel at the time who are self righteous that they're bringing their deeds before him, mm. and yet all the while it 's only to promote their own sense of self righteousness a righteousness that really is a false righteousness, because they don't have it, and so it's not that they're guilty because they didn't feed the sick, they didn't identify with the poor they're guilty because they did not see. The kingdom of God as one to join themselves to and therefore their actions demonstrated that they were outside of it and I say that because even if you look at the history of the rulers and the history of Israel itself that you had you know you had people who were temporally caring for one another although it was a relationship of exploitation um, but they were not doing so from a from an act of of, of faith, nor was it that they actually belonged to Christ, they were doing it to be commended by others. And we find that in the curses in Matthew 23, and in other portions of scripture where they did the things that would appear to be philanthropic, um, generous, uh, but in fact, they they didn't have any connection to the Christ who came to tell them that they were dead in their sins and that their nature needed to be changed. Okay,
0: so, you know, I like to think of think how the opposition would think sure i like to try to throw a monkey wrench at you from time to time so what would you say to the person who would argue yeah but aren't we being judged by our works
1: absolutely yeah we are being judged by our works as believers but the works do not lead to uh in and of themselves salvation the Go works are the works are constrained to their nature, and so you have only two ways in which a person performs works: that they're either works that are performed out of a heart of self righteousness, a heart to be recognized by man, a heart that desires to see uh, the things that God wants to throw down to be raised up. Uh, you see, that people have a sense of 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 a moral compass. People have a sense of justice. The issue is is that people don't see themselves the way that God sees them if they're not born again. And so, yes, people are judged according to their works, but the works themselves do not testify uh, to salvation if those works are being used in such a way so as to commend yourself and your performance before God. Um, the way that a person is judged by their works as a believer in the sense that are those works authenticating their salvation and. Therefore, demonstrating that they belong to Christ is that uh, the faith without works that James speaks of is one that demonstrates that now that you have been saved, that there's a tutelage of grace as spelled out for us in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. And the tutelage of grace, what it does is it's not static. It's very dynamic in that once you're saved, you're saved unto good works, that there's works that are given to you by God to do. And here's the distinction that those works do not draw attention to your platform, your ideologies, yourself, your self-interest, or any other system that would be antagonizing toward biblical truth. So your works, however they may be, your works always are aligned to uh the orthodox sound orthodoxy, straight thinking, right thinking, as handed down in the apostolic corpus in scripture. So works are performed for the benefit of the body of Christ. And so it's not simply to lend yourself and throw yourself into societal reform and to liberate, uh, you know, whoever are the oppressors. Because I've got news for you. Some people are being afflicted this hour because of their unbelief. So affliction is not always because society has somehow Decided to raise their hand against individuals. And I'll tell you, if you really want to begin to deal with people and the oppressed, come and start to join your cause to the Christians. Because there are people who are oppressed for centuries. And I'll tell you, quite frankly, that they were promised this lot that the Christians are told that they're going to inherit these troubles, and yet Christ has overcome the world. And we hear very little of people joining themselves um, to that cause because quite frankly, uh, a Marxist system would identify the Christian in that instance of being weak. Right. So to me, uh, when you begin to really look at these things, and you look at works itself, works are not to be used to commend yourself and your performance uh, to God, because all those works are as filthy rags, that there's no one who's righteous by nature uh, at the outset of their birth in such a way where they have the eternal resources to pay God back. When you are saved by grace through faith, not by what you have done, not according to your flesh, not by the works of your hands. When you're saved, you're given a mercy, a grace that then puts you in position to demonstrate uh, the kind of works that God has given you to do. And then he is honored. He is glorified because he's the source of those works. Good points, brother. Good points. Um, and So he
0: goes on and he talks about, he says, the task of liberation theology is to recover the practical dimension inherent in biblical faith. In the world of the oppressed, this practice can only be liberating. So in essence, again, like I said, (laughs) like I said, last, um, in our last episode, they're pushing the pendulum too far in the other direction. Absolutely. And, And now they're getting away from, making sure that their orthopraxy is tied to their orthodoxy. And instead they're overemphasizing orthopraxy to the point
1: where they're even taking scriptures out of context. Um, Absolutely. And, and, and what they're, what they're fighting against is a real problem, but they're fighting a battle in such a way. So as to twist the solution, you know, there is a problem with people, especially along the lines of modern evangelicalism, where everything is just head knowledge and everything is just how much Greek do I know? How many people can I impress with my expertise in a particular topic and all these other things. And it's all very, um, almost like an egghead kind of approach to religion itself. And so they are fighting against something that is visible. However, the answer is not to call people to abandon the whole construct in order to practice what is true Mm -hmm. it's you hold them accountable to what's actually true and then hold them accountable in such a way that they have to act in accordance with what they know and with what they learn. And so to me, you know, and I say, I I keep saying to me, but obviously biblically speaking, any movement that has to redefine terms in order to get you to join their cause is a movement that you should abandon overall, Mm -hmm. you know, to me uh, in any wave, it's really what it amounts to is the spirit of the age. You know, you have people with this angst that they believe that they're being oppressed and they believe that, that, that in order to remove that oppression, you have to join a certain activism. Mm -hmm. And so they believe that that activism is the proper practical expression of true christianity but if you read what true christianity is about as it is revealed by the testimony of scripture it has very little to do with the schemes of man and their kingdom and their political interests and all the things that they would do to build a quote-unquote better society the scripture deals with the divine kingdom to come it deals with the fact that when christ comes to rule and reign there's some things that he's going to initiate and inaugurate that will cast down the world system. Yes, even your precious systems. And so, you know, when you look at what has taken place, it's a kingdom that's not of this world. So you have a whole lot of people who are fighting for kingdoms that are that belong to this world, and yet saying that they're Christian, yet saying that that's the most elaborate expression of their Christian faith. That if you don't stand with us because we're black, then that means essentially you're not you're for the oppressors, not the liberators. And to me, I'm going, if I stand with you and think that your only means of liberation is some societal reform because of your skin color and mistreatments, I have missed the point of your divine, uh, the divine purposes for which Christ has sent his son, or Mm -hmm. for which God has sent his son, Christ. And so for me, it really comes down to does the solution transcend uh, the modern issues and does the solution properly identify your oppressor. And I've got news for every man, your greatest oppressor is yourself. Mm. You are your greatest oppressor. Ain't that the truth. (laughs) And so the reason is, is because in your nature, you cannot come to terms with reconciliation to God on your own. It's why people are so distracted with doing everything else. And even looking at the scripture and saying, I'm not going to submit what the scripture says I'm going to pull in the scripture to support my cause, mm-hmm. and you know it it really has become um enslaving and 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 you know we talk about it often. A way to continue to enslave people is not so much you keep their chains on them, but what you do is you keep their a sense of their own um, you keep a sense of their sin and impre- and oppression before them be it past, present, or future, in such a way that you don't offer a means to be liberated from it at all. You just offer theory. Right. You you physically,
0: you physically remove the chains, but mentally you keep them
1: in the in the wrong mindset. Absolutely. And you theorize about liberation. Mm-hmm. When really there is no liberation in joining yourself to any cause that has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Right. No, it's nothing but a, a false it's nothing but a false hope. Exactly. Exactly.
0: All right. All right. And, I mean, like we said several in several episodes, um, societal reforms. Are, there's nothing wrong with societal reforms. I mean, we right. need we need laws. Absolutely. You know. You know. We we could use a little police reform. I don't. I don't have a problem with that. Absolutely. Um, you know, our, our government needs to change. That's for sure. But again, societal reforms are only a band aid. They don't get down to the root of the issue
1: which is the depravity of man, yeah because the Bible the Bible doesn't teach the Bible doesn't teach anarchy right um you know so just as you need to ensure that ministers of justice are doing what God has commanded them to do, you need to ensure for yourself that you are following the moral mandates of what is required of you and so if you're not doing that you know all this gray area stuff where people are protesting about things that really are a matter of can we identify objectively what is right and what is wrong, and because people refuse to do that, they find themselves just being joined to things on the basis of a new form of partiality, um, you know, which is really the pride of life that that John the apostle warns people against. But uh, but again, yeah, I mean you 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 know you have to continue to set before people their oppression and then you have people who just are reinventing themselves as activists because they know that you know as long as there's the sinful heart of man and as long as you know as long as people continue to demonstrate their sinfulness especially when you have the means of recording things on both sides you know as long as those things are evident you can act, you can be an activist all day about those things. And make good money on it too. And make good money and you have to continue to set people's, uh, set people's failures and conditions before them to continue to tell them why, you're, why your system of liberation is the best system. There, you'll, you'll hear very little of actual solutions. All you right. hear is angst, anxiety, frustration, and, and I'm even talking about in the, in the Latin American liberation theology context you hear the the leaders of old and even leaders of the new school talking about how people need to be liberated and they they deal with why they believe that that's true but they never really deal with the fact that there's a once and for all solution to all of this mm-hmm. and so um there's always someone waiting to get rich off identifying you as being oppressed right and so I mean, you, they they become rich when you start to believe it's true mhm and then
0: you know, when you when you run along people such as ourselves who are actually trying to provide solutions, biblical solutions, which are actually the only the only solution. Right. Um, and, and And these people start getting free because God is opening their eyes to the truth. And these people start getting free. Now, you no longer have a voice.
1: Absolutely. So you're
0: going to do all that you can to keep these people where they are.
1: Absolutely, because
0: you, you you saw the discussion I had with my friend on Facebook, you know, and just talking about you know who's to blame for the the black people being where they are. Well, black people, right? I mean, you're not going to bait me into answering the question and saying, "Oh, well, of course, it's the white man." No, it's 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 black people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. and, and 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 even deeper than that is the fact that their nature has to be
1: changed. Absolutely. And and in, in every instance where there is a need for revolution, Satan is willing to concede certain things that are actually true if it can lead you into deception. Mm-hmm. There is a need for revolution, but it's spiritual revolution. That people have to start opening up their Bibles. They have to start studying the Word of God for themselves. They have to come out of these places that are simply feeding them Cotton candy and all this other stuff, mm-hmm. and they have to begin to deal with the fact that your greatest oppression is not anything that's happening in this life as an effect because you can identify in liberation theology, they do a good job of identifying the effects and trying to argue that they're causes, mm-hmm. but the cause of every man's uh, oppression is the fall itself that right. that's the issue, so then the question is how do we deal with the fall? How do we deal with the fall of man? Because every man is fallen. Mm -hmm. And yes, some express their depravity in different ways and some express their depravity in, in, in more overt, sinful ways. But nonetheless, it's all depraved and depraved minds argue against and with depraved minds. And so, uh, so you have to deal with the original cause of things. And then when you deal with the original cause of things, you not only are speaking to people's effects and trying to propose yourself as the solution to those things, and nor do you become overly frustrated uh, about those particular things as well. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we, we, we talk about it all the time. Someone is looking for someone to blame for their circumstances, but the issue is always going to come back to who God is and, and and are you found in him? Are you saved by grace through faith or are you his enemy? <clears throat> because I don't mind if all society has deemed me an enemy if I'm reconciled to God. Romans uh, chapter 8. No condemnation therefore awaits those who are in Christ Jesus. But if I am joined to society's causes and society... Kisses me and commends me for what I say and do, and yet I find myself compromising the truth of God's word to identify with people with people who have grieved them based on their nature and based on the fact that they have rebelled against Him and His Son. There's no reason to identify with that, and, and I believe it has to be exposed. And obviously what we're saying, people have a ready answer for and they can turn you off and say, you're obviously not speaking to the things that are taking place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but you're not speaking to the issues that that afflict uh, one particular ethnicity over another. Well, that's not the the goal of the truth, because the goal of the truth doesn't gather in one particular ethnicity above all others, because then God would be a, a God of partiality. Mm-hmm. What it does is it brings in a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, but I've got news for you it also excludes a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue yeah. and so the issue is not you know the transgressions that man has against man. that's an effect that's not the cause mm-hmm. and so uh when you only deal with the effects, again, you can propose any kind of thing and then justify it along those lines as well All right
0: and you talked about you know people are always looking for somebody to blame that actually works out for the second point. <laughs> the second point is the living God sides with the oppressed against the pharaohs of this world. So <laughs> here they're, yeah. they're t- taking an old Testament narrative and then they're plugging modern day people into it. So right. he says, and uh, let's see, he says, uh but beyond divine transcendence, God is not a terrifying mystery, but full of tenderness. God is especially close to those who are oppressed. He's implying like every, everyone. God is especially close to those who are oppressed. God hears their cry and resolves to set them free. And he uses Exodus chapter 3 as the text. Mm. But the difference between what he's talking about and the text is the fact that these were God's covenant people. And again, like you said, when we're talking about Matthew 25, even in Matthew 25, there was a distinction between God's covenant people, God's elect, and the non-elect, right? This this text that he's quoting here in Exodus Mm three is just talking about his chosen people, his covenant people. And if you go back before that into Genesis, he, himself the lord himself said that they would go into slavery right. and be oppressed right for 430 years right he already said that that was going to happen right okay so the the, the oppression that happened to them was orchestrated by god himself right. so that israel would know that he is the lord but also that egypt would know that
1: he is the Lord. I mean, that phrase, it was 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 to draw them to him. Yeah. yeah. It was to, it was to draw them to him. And, 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 and also, you know, when you look at what is taking place in that situation, that again, this is why the construct that liberation theology has of God himself is one that is very much like man. Mm -hmm. And that man is, double-minded, that he can't decide what it is he really wants at times. And he'll reinvent himself to join himself to one cause. And then the next cause he'll find and that cause is worthy of fighting. But I say that because the, the there's a very specific reason for which not only were the people of Israel placed in the situation they were, but not all of them were brought out of that situation at a wholesale and then They were uh, for those who were brought out, it was for redemptive purposes, Mm -hmm. it was to draw them to Him. And I'll tell you, this whole business of God unanimously hears the cries of the oppressed. Well, in John chapter 9, verses 31, it says very plainly, We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God fearing and does His will. He hears him mm-hmm. and it also says in Job 35 13 surely god does not listen to empty pleas and the almighty does not take note of it psalm 34 the eyes of the lord are on the righteous and his ears are inclined to their cry it's not simply people who are being oppressed it is righteous people mm-hmm. and so oppression is an effect it's not a cause and so when people keep saying that oh, we are oppressed. Well, that's a cause. You have to ask why. And the why may lead to some very real answers as to your position before God. Mm -hmm. Why are you afflicted with torment? Why is everything bothering you as it is? Why do you look at another person crafted in God's image and think that they're responsible for impeding your progress in this world? So it's not necessarily dealing with your sense of oppression because that's a very subjective thing. Mm -hmm. When you talk about being righteous, that's a very, that's a, that's a very objective thing. Right. So in terms of the Christian, for those who are listening to this, I would say you have to stop using the constructs of the world to explain your position and the construct of the world, even this worldly ideology of liberation theology wants to move aside what it means to be righteous and replace that with oppression what it means to be oppressed because everybody in their life goes through oppression. But Mm -hmm. again, it's, who do you blame for that oppression? Is it circumstances? Is it societal conditions? Is it a particular ethnicity? What God is dealing with is the righteous and it's the righteous he hears because everyone who, who is oppressed is not righteous. Right. Everyone who's oppressed wants nothing to do with Jesus Christ. And in fact, again, as I say, as I said it before, there are some who are oppressed, That's simply a glimpse of eternal torment, where people will be oppressed for all eternity.
0: And right now, they're oppressed
1: because of their sinfulness. Exactly. And then there's some who are thriving in their sinfulness, and they think that God Mm. is hearing them. But his, his eyes are looking upon the righteous. He's hearing the prayers of the righteous. How are they righteous? By what they do, by who they feed, by what picket lines they join, by what protests they join no they're righteous based on if they are found in him uh, based on the doctrines of scripture and so it always does go back to orthodoxy but it had better flesh itself out in terms of orthopraxy practicing what we know to be true and that is all very objective and so it's it's not based on liberating the oppressed it's based on liberating the unrighteous yeah now you you also talked about
0: god and why he can't be partial right so get ready for this it said god is father of all but most particularly father and defender of those who are oppressed and treated unjustly out of love for them god takes sides takes their side against the repressive measures of all the pharaohs this partiality on god's part which you just said god can't be partial This partiality on God's part shows that life and justice should be a universal guarantee to all, starting with those who are at present denied them. No one has the right to offend another human being, of course not the image and likeness of God. God is glorified in the life sustaining activities of men and women. God is worshiped in the doing of justice. God does not stand by impassively watching the drama of human history in which, generally speaking, the strong impose their laws and their will on the weak. The biblical authors often present Yahweh as Goel, which means he who does justice to the weak, father of orphans and comforter of widows. So here they're saying that God is doing something that he himself said not to do. You know, and then they, they go on and talk about he who does justice to the weak father of orphans and comforter of widows so that they're only zooming in on certain aspects of the character of god and not looking at god in in the wholeness of his character and his attributes
1: and 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 let's let's explain it this way and you know obviously when you look at what scripture is saying in the grand scheme of what god is doing with israel then what they would have to accuse god of is being a god who is a is one of partiality which is no god at all mm-hmm. because what he does then is he liberates israel and certain features of their history and he lavishes upon them the treasures and the riches of grace he, he brings them into a land flowing with milk and honey he brings them to a place and it, it obviously it's not total fulfillment until the end times but he brings them to a place of partial fulfillment where he lavishes all these mercy toward them and i'll tell you even more and this is an argument against the whole idea that he only identifies in a sense or zooming in on the fact that he only identifies with the oppressed when he makes believers what they are in terms of joining them to his son the substitute the lamb of god who takes upon himself the sins of the world and the world being confined to those who believe and to the elect of god he lavishes upon them an eternal kingdom he gives them eternal riches and glory in christ jesus he gives them the the gr- more untold riches uh, than 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 all the world could amass and it says even about him as we describe features about god that the world itself the treasures of the world in a sense are his to be used at his disposal so there's a god in which Uh, that that they are absent of, that this one true God is one that's not simply haggardly and beggared and seeking Mm -hmm. to identify with people who are oppressed, but one who has untold riches, who is not going to lavish people in this life without the pain of suffering, but he's going to lavish upon them eternal riches that far surpasses any riches in this world itself. And so when you look at what God is doing, even in the sense of, people being joined to his kingdom as joint heirs, he does not only side with the oppressed because he lavishes riches upon those who belong to him. And he's pleased to give them the kingdom, the kingdom of God far surpassing anything in this world, even the glory of all other kingdoms. And when he lavishes upon them, things like grace, things like mercy, what comes with that is eternal riches, Mm -hmm. eternal glory, all the things that man is trying to attain to in this temporal life. God gives to his elect an eternal life. And so if he were one who were simply concerned with the plight of the oppressed, he wouldn't lavish them with riches. He would keep them oppressed and he would superimpose himself into their oppression and remain oppressed with them. Because that's what liberation theology of all stripes and shades and ethnicities is really functionally asking for, even though they themselves don't practice it that way because the leaders at the top Are always those who are rich themselves Mm -hmm. and so when god is dealing with israel it's not simply identifying with them in their conditions it's bringing them out of their conditions and it's bringing them out of their effect of conditions which the effect of their conditions is caused by sin rebellion and so god needs to be merciful to bring them from that and to lavish upon them the riches of his glory and his grace and so i use those terms not generally but as an expression because what God does, it can be studied in scripture. Mm-hmm. And what he owns is the riches and glory of eternal treasures.
0: Okay. Okay. Which actually, I mean, have you read this book? Cause
1: it actually, oh, what you're so saying okay. actually. <laughs> I can't the, say that I have that wholesale. We've talked about it. <laughs> Cause the next point
0: is talking about the kingdom, but they, the way they define the kingdom uh, you'll see he says the next point is the kingdom is god's project in history and eternity which at face value
1: you would read that and go yeah. okay you're waiting and going okay but what's project <laughs> <laughs> right
0: <laughs> right so he goes on and he he says the kingdom is not just in the future for it is in our midst it's not a kingdom of this world, but it nevertheless begins to come about in this world. The kingdom or reign of God means the full and total liberation of all creation. See, that they got to get that word liberation in yes, everything. It yeah. Just like we repeat things so that they stick in people's minds, they do the yeah. same thing. Right. Because the kingdom or reign of God means the full and total liberation of all creation in the end. Purified of all that oppresses it, there's liberation, oppression, liberation, oppression, transfigured by the full presence of God. And he says, No other theological or biblical concept is as close to the ideal of integral liberation as this concept of the kingdom of God. then he goes on, he says, Because the kingdom is the absolute, it embraces all things, the sacred and profane history, the church and the world human beings and the cosmos then he goes on he says under different sacred and profane signs the kingdom is always present where persons bring about justice seek comradeship forgive each other and promote life however the kingdom finds a particular expression in the church which is its perceptible sign, its privileged instrument, its initial budding forth and principle insofar as it lives the gospel and builds itself up from day to day as the body of Christ.
1: Yeah, that's so contradictory. And I say that because when you talk about the kingdom, the kingdom also excludes. And so it's not simply that the kingdom includes, you know, that it's somehow this general sense in which something is made manifest. And then it tries to join with it the specifics. Um, you know, when you talk about the inauguration of the kingdom, you have to understand that it's God's kingdom, and God brings the kingdom to pass. Mm-hmm. And so God establishes, inaugurates, and 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 builds His kingdom. And so it's not that man somehow has to help God. Uh, it's God calls man believing man into his kingdom to execute his will. That's why the the, the disciples prayer, that kingdom come, uh, you know, it's known as the Lord's prayer, but he tells his disciples to pray it. That kingdom come, thy will be done Mm -hmm. on earth as it is where in heaven. It's not on earth as it is on earth. So then that points to a standard. Well, how, how do I know what God's will is and how do I know where that will is going to uh, is going to descend from. So when you talk about heaven and the will of God, you're talking about I must then to execute God's will. I must look to where His will is proclaimed, and His will is proclaimed in His Word. And I fear that the contradiction here is that they're saying His kingdom is not of this world, but we must embrace the world in order to uh, we must embrace features of the world in order to see God's kingdom made manifest. Yeah. And we also must place an emphasis on certain things. That draws us to an expression of God's kingdom, and yet also in the world, so that we can join the two together. And that's not what God yeah. is doing in His kingdom. Yeah, it also it, it
0: it almost sounds like. Well, I'm not gonna say almost. It sounds like this this particular paragraph just really bothers me. He says, under different sacred and profane signs. The kingdom is always present where persons bring about justice, seek comradeship, forgive each other and promote life. So instead of keeping the kingdom narrow, they actually extend it out to where now it's not only that saved people are part of the kingdom. Right. When unsaved people do stuff that seemingly would be part of the kingdom, then they're showing the kingdom of God as well. And that's, that's right. just totally goes against what the Bible says. The Bible says that in order for you to be a kingdom citizen, you have to repent of your sins, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to be redeemed. You have to be reconciled. Right. It is God is the one, as you said, it's God
1: who places you in the kingdom. Right. You know? And you're not, you're not in the kingdom because you're alienated because of your sin. So the unjust is made just by God. Mm -hmm. And so the unjust is not judging themselves and ruling themselves and quote unquote, policing themselves to somehow make themselves fit for a just kingdom. It's that they can never enter the kingdom because they are unjust by nature. Uh, And, 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 you know, even in, even in what's said there, I mean, the distinction uh, that is made in terms of, where the kingdom is Uh, the kingdom itself is going to come in power and in glory and jesus is going to portray himself as the king of kings Mm -hmm. as he is the king of all kings he's the lord of all lords and so you know when when liberation theology is speaking about the kingdom the kingdom of god even for those who dare go in that direction they are talking about the inauguration of ideology. Mm. political government ideology and how that will impact the socioeconomic poor and also those who they would deem uh, poor even if they join it the theological pretenses but they're never talking about divine truth they're not they're not they're using terminology that corresponds to divine truth but they're redefining it in such a way so as to express that man's greatest need is to be liberated through political ideology. And, you know, for those of you listening, you can identify what are certain features of that. It would join itself to certain Marxist ideology, communistic ideology, uh, Sharia law, and other things mm-hmm. of, of, uh, of, of the false Islamic um, view of, of, of law. But it always is dealing with a form of law that needs to be established based on political ideology. And even when they speak in theocratic terms, they're not speaking of Jesus bringing in his will and his kingdom because they're always telling you what you have to do in order to inaugurate his kingdom on his behalf. It's just, it's just amazing how, just to see,
0: it's well, not just amazing, but disturbing as well, just to see how people can take God's word and just redefine it to suit their ideologies, as opposed to bowing the knee to the authority of Scripture, absolutely, and doing what the Scripture itself says, properly interpreting it. But instead, just taking it and 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 here, when we we deal with this, and we'll do one more, and then we'll do we'll do a part two next time with the other four, because there's actually eight points. But just to see the subtle reshaping yes. of, of scripture where, because there are things that they said that you can go, oh yeah, yeah, I, I do agree with that. Like, especially in the next point that we're going to, the last point we're going to do, you hear these things and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but, that, but that's how they suck you in. They have to, they, they can't just walk up to you and say, hey, you know, I'm a liberation theologian and then they just flat out lie to you. Yeah. Cuz then you're just going to walk away from it. They have to take and like you hey like you have said in several podcasts, they have to use our <laughs> truth. Right. They use our truth to draw people in so that that they and once they get those people in, then they suddenly bring in the deception piece by piece to the point where, I mean, like, this is how people go from being, I guess you
1: could say, sleep to woke. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, they- well, because, and I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, even if, if there's going to be any listeners from those who would openly contend for what they're seeing today as though it's justified, you know, you're dealing with people who are overtaken by emotion. However, they can articulate certain things. I mean, you're not dealing with, you know, that's why I don't believe even what's happening today is a one for one based on, you know, Jim Crow and all those other things. You know, you're dealing with people who are highly educated, fairly educated, you know, even amongst the so-called black community, the so-called black community. You're dealing with people who are educated, they can, artic- they can articulate things, they can express themselves. And, So how do you enslave those kind of people? How do you enslave people who are educated? Educated even by the world system. Well, you have to do it in a number of ways. But one of those ways is you have to redefine language. You Mm -hmm. have to redefine terminology. And that's how you begin to enslave people's minds. And then from there, you can inject your agenda. You can say, you can begin to talk about oppression. You can then begin to... Have them consider that one life is certainly demanding of our attention over the next, and that you can join to it these hashtags and these catchphrases and all these things. And if you you do that, if you redefine language, then people will begin to be more zealous than you are. And when they're more zealous than you are, they'll use the language that they have just gained, the language that's going to draw them in deception to argue their points. Mm-hmm. So that's how you enslave the mind, because you can't openly parade people in Western civilization in shackles any longer. Nope. But what you can do is you can redefine terms. You can redefine uh, the, the people. You can redefine history itself. You can redefine biblical key terms that people need to understand and presuppose in order to even begin to deal with the issues in front of them. And if you can do that, you'll get people to be able to argue for things that they never would have thought of that they would argue for.
0: Right. You, you, make, they, the sh- you make the shackles internal, but you, you make them so that they don't seem like shackles.
1: Absolutely. And that's what you're dealing with. You're dealing with people who are enslaved to their sin, that they're enslaved to their sin, be it supremacy of, e- of any ethnicity, be it they love this world and they love all that's in the world, they love the world system, and so they're going to fight, scratch, and claw to preserve it on both sides of the coin. And they'll do everything except open the word of God, sit before God's word, and let it cut them. And then once it cuts them, they can deal with society at large. But if you redefine that, you're dealing with a new type of slave and a new type of slavery. And I believe that that's what we're seeing today. And that's why liberation theology is so attractive and the liberation movements of today are so attractive because it has had a head start in redefining what people, uh, what people think they need to be freed from. And it's doing so at a rapid rate through media. It's doing so at a rapid rate through all kinds of things. It's controlling what people see so that it can control their arguments. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. if you can control what people see, then people will begin to argue in favor of what they see, not the faith of what will be, but, but what they see, they begin to walk by sight. And that's what these liberation movements are all about. They're all about causing you to walk by sight all right. and what controls your sight, your emotions, yes. revisionist history, mm-hmm. one-sided facts, quote unquote facts, Arguments that you may be borrowing from a particular party of interest that you feel like will do best for you in your temporal life. And so that that is that's a new kind of slavery that we're fighting. And quite frankly, people need to be liberated from themselves.
0: Right. So one more. And then uh, I'll let you uh, take us home with the final word. (laughs) Absolutely. So point four is jesus the son of god took on oppression in order to set us free so he he and this is this is one where i said you could hear some of the stuff and go oh, okay okay so he says um where i want to start at he says the incarnation of the word of god implies the assumption of human life as marked by the contradictions left by sin not in order to consecrate them but in order to redeem them in these conditions jesus became a servant and made himself obedient even to death on a cross so you see you hear that and you're like oh that's philippians chapter two yeah okay all right he's using the text sounds good right says his first public word was to proclaim that the kingdom of god was at hand again oh, oh okay all right and already present as good news when he publicly set out his program in the synagogue in Nazareth, he took on the hopes of the oppressed and announced that they were now this day being fulfilled. So now they see, you see they gave you a couple of facts, biblical facts, that you could uh, shake your head at and say, okay, this is good. And now they're starting to sneak in the oppression and the liberation again. He says, so the Messiah is one who brings about the liberation of all classes of unfortunates. The kingdom is also in liberation from sin, but this must not be interpreted in a reductionist sense, which they've been doing the whole time, (laughs) to the point where the infrastructural dimension in Jesus' preaching, stressed by the evangelists, is lost sight of. But they keep overstressing liberation and oppression to the point where they've already lost sight of the sin. The meaning of the gospel in the first place right. so he says uh the kingdom is not presented simply as something to be hoped for in the future it is all already being made concrete in jesus actions his miracles and healings besides demonstrating his divinity are designed to show that his liberating proclamation is already being made history among the oppressed the special recipients of his teaching and first beneficiaries of his actions. The kingdom of God is a gift of God offered gratuitously to all, but the way into the kingdom is through the process of conversion. So see, now they have to come back around and try to, but as we established the last time when we talked yeah. about the foundations of theology, they, read, they their definition of conversion is not the same. Right, That's the biblical definition of conversion. Right. And, and he says it right here. The conversion demanded by Jesus does not mean just a change of convictions, but above all, a change of attitude toward all one's previous
1: personal, social, and religious relationships. Yeah, that's not, that's not the goal of Jesus nor the goal of the kingdom. In fact, the goal is not to make man more relatable with one another. That is an effect so to speak, but man who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, because even the very cost of discipleship created more enemies for those who belong to Jesus. And so the goal wasn't to simply join man to a certain utopia, because that's quite frankly, that's what liberation theology is advertising a a utopia. Mm -hmm. That's that wasn't the goal because all the apostles save for John, the apostle, according to church history are killed. Many Christians are killed throughout the age. Jesus promises that the world is going to hate them because they hated him. And so his message of so-called liberation as they're claiming it and his miracles had everything to do with authenticating a common kingdom. So what God was doing outwardly by miracles, by casting out demons, they neglected to mention that, but by casting out demons throughout Israel, throughout the oppressed What he was doing was he was demonstrating what he would do inwardly to man, Mm -hmm. that he would change man's nature, that he would change not simply his conditions, but he would change his heart. And that the conditions for following Jesus Christ, when one actually becomes a disciple of of the Lord Jesus Christ, the world system actually stacks up against that man and that individual. You think you're oppressed without Jesus Christ now, wait until you, uh, if the Lord saves you, what that looks like. Because there's trouble. There's those who persecute you. There's those who hate you. There's those who will conspire to kill you because of your testimony of the truth. And so it's not simply that Jesus was preaching a better tomorrow and to liberate people from their conditions. That's not what he did because he actually left some people in their conditions if they would not repent. Right. But the condition being not temporal and societal reform, the condition being reconciliation to God to god himself no matter what the world does and so you know they can't say in their earlier arguments that the kingdom is not of this world but then begin to describe the kingdom according to uh some kind of communal marxist ideology that brings a utopianism to man on this earth you know and that and and they're getting it's building i I know this is a book so it's building there when you start to use terminology such as we make things made manifest by our actions right And as long as you find whoever the oppressors are and you side with them, then somehow you find yourself joined to the very cause of God. Uh, That's not true. Because that's not a unilateral sense in which God does that. Uh, There are those who, the condition being that they must repent. Mm -hmm. And if they don't repent, then they'll perish. Then they'll be inflicted and afflicted with judgment which is the greatest oppression that anyone can be afflicted with. And guess who's going to be behind that? God himself. He's going to afflict them because they did not repent. And so the idea that Jesus is coming along simply to liberate people from their conditions, that's not true because Jesus lived in those same conditions. And quite frankly, when he gave up his life, he died in those conditions. And so it wasn't his goal to simply reform Rome. Mm -hmm. His goal was to liberate people who were dead in their sins and to bring them into eternal life, in spite of what this world was going to offer them, because the world itself is passing away. The world itself is going to be destroyed by the elements of fire and of judgment from God himself. And so that would seem that God is somehow schizophrenic, according to their ideology, if he's going to destroy the world. And in the same way, he's trying to identify uh, identify with the oppressed and liberate them. That's why people have to think about the implication of the arguments that are presented before them. And, mm-hmm. you know, I believe that in order for liberation theology to succeed, brother, I've been given this some thought. You have to inflame people's passions and hatred. You that's have to, that's what's being done too. You have to do that in order for them to think that this system will actually work. We know the track record of the system. You can show people the track record of the system and people will offer you one or two things. They'll either say, I have nothing to do with that system. I simply want black people to be free. Mm -hmm. Or you'll have people say, I believe that the system presents for us the best way forward in ways that other generations has not experienced that. But I believe that both arguments are false. Mm because each of them deals with the effect. They don't deal with the cause. Is there oppression? Is there ethnic prejudice? Sure, those things are there. Are they systemic enough where your personal progress cannot move forward in such a way that everyone is to blame because you have failed? To me, that's a more enslaving system than any system I could think of. Mm. When you begin to set before people, their conditions continually, their conditions of failure, their lack of progress in generations past. And when you set before them only that, not highlighting everything that comes between the people who made it out of slavery, Western slavery, and actually succeeded in society, that even the black conscious movement of about 20, 25 years ago, that movement was based on success. Mm -hmm. That movement was based on what black people actually accomplished in history like history month wasn't it was a commemoration of what people accomplished it wasn't to overthrow their accomplishments in favor of holding before them ancient oppression and so when you're dealing with that you have to inflame that in people brother in order for people to not only look away from their solutions but to begin to raise up their new captors as their heroes right and and also that's That's what liberation theology has always done. Mm -hmm. It paints your captors as your heroes. And then you begin to identify with your captors as those who can liberate you. Stockholm Syndrome. Absolutely. And that's what you're seeing.
0: And like it also does, one of the things that you said, it also causes them to ignore because when I argue with these guys, I always argue about what about all the achievements that Black people, all the success that Black people have in the past and now, all the basketball players, football players, Olympians, uh, people in legislature, like Angela Stanton King, is, she's running for uh, Congress in Georgia, I believe it's Congress. Mm. She's running for in, in Georgia, you know. Um, all these Black people now I have all these things afforded to them, all this success. All, all of this, and, and a lot of them, come from adversity. Right. But then you go back to the 30s, the 40s, 50s, the 60s, where it was like really bad, and even before that, to the 1800s, and you can read success stories of all kinds of Black people, and the conditions in those times were even more harsh than they they are now. Absolutely. But like you said, what they, what they do is they draw your your eyes away from the achievements, absolutely, and say, yeah, yeah, we 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 achieved all that, but you know what? You're still a victim. You're and, still oppressed. You're and, still racially profiled. You're still a, a victim. You're still weak. You know the white man still doesn't want you to get anywhere and do
1: anything. And that is the new slavery and the new slave, the new slave. And the new enslavement is to do two things to you. It's to make you think that you have to find legitimacy from other individuals. And that happens across all spectrum, modern evangelicalism, other ethnic groups. But because this is what's going on in terms of the current events of the, of, of the day, that for individuals who identify themselves as, as the black community, who would be drinking in a lot of these things. Many of them. The new enslavement for you is that people are beginning to make you think that you are now oppressed because they have deemed it so, Hmm. whether it's happening or not. And the only worth and dignity that you have is to advocate along those lines. That's one. The other way that you're enslaved is that they make you think that you have to find legitimacy and meet with their approval to somehow be liberated. So now, in order for you to be liberated, they had better start to recognize you as being free. (laughs) To me, that's enslavement. That's a new form of slavery. Where you, the individual, no longer are able to function in a society, whereas your accomplishments are not measured by comparing yourselves to others, because even what Paul says, that that's what unbelievers do. That your accomplishments are now not enough for you, because they're not legitimized by a particular subset, by a particular ethnicity. So now you have to continue to be an activist. And then you want to go to the issue of, well, we're not doing that. We're more dealing with these issues of so-called police brutality and other things. But you're joining yourself to situations where there may or may not have been just or unjust causes. And you're vicariously living through those situations when you yourself are free. You yourself are not one who's in presently violation of any law. And so you're advocating for things that have, quite frankly, nothing to do with you. Because you want to identify with the collective. And to me, it's a new form of slavery. It's a new form of slavery to make you think that the achievements before you, that your own achievements have nothing to do with your progress, that your progress is only deemed so in as much as you're legitimized by a particular party, by a particular ethnicity, and then once they legitimize you, now you're free. To me, that's slavery. That's ideological slavery. And so if, if, that, if that is systemic, it's systemic because the line is being drawn in the sand, not from those who are in the so-called white community. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words should never hurt you. Mm-hmm. So no matter what people are saying about you or no matter what they're thinking about you, that should not impede your progress to function in this society. I would think that black people are stronger than that because that's what I saw coming up. That's what exactly. I experienced. Exactly. But to me, to have this mentality that you are being oppressed because of what people think or might think about you, that is infantile. That's enslavement. You have gone back into the very thing that you have been liberated from. Mm. And then to join it to this liberation movement. And these liberation movements, such as Black Lives Matters and all this other stuff, and to then join it to liberation theology because they are, and to Marxism because that's what they want. And to take yourself out of a free economy and to take yourself away from these things in order for you to prove the point that you're oppressed. When if you really look around, you, when you re- if you really look around to what you are experiencing this hour, it's not oppression. You're free you still have freedoms. You may not know what the extent of those freedoms are. You might not feel like you're free, but freedom isn't a feeling. Right. It's a disposition. And so this is a sense in which I believe that what we're dealing with, brother, in these podcasts and dealing with liberation theology on all sides, on both sides, is that you have caricatures being painted before people to keep them enslaved to a reality that's no reality at all. that you have people who think they can't go anywhere all the while I've watched people argue that they're not free and that the white man is the source of all their trouble and that they feel unsafe in their society. And you begin to launch into a debate with them and you know what they say, I'm gonna have to get back to you because I'm going out to take my children to X, Y, and Z. Hm. So you have freedom of movement. You can take your kids outside in this society. You can take them to a park. And sure, you hope that something wouldn't happen, but that's the same thing I do when I get into a car. I hope I don't get into a car accident when I book plane tickets. I hope the pilot knows what he's doing. But it's not systemic. It's not every plane that I get on will crash. Every car that I drive will lead me to a car accident. That's (laughs) systemic. To me, what's systemic is the institutionalized way of thinking that has overtaken this generation. That's systemic. And they want us to think that so-called ethnic prejudice is systemic. That's not systemic. It's not systemic because you even have a voice to challenge it. You have a social media platform to challenge it. Mm-hmm. During Jim Crow, if you spoke out anything against systemic oppression and racism, oh, you're done. quote unquote, you're dead. You're hanged. That's a wrap. Your life is forfeit. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case in the modern context in which we live. Now, I would compel you and beg you to do one thing. Repent turn to Christ and live. Why? Because then you're given the most sure, objective, courageous platform to speak with a boldness. That's not your own, a courage that does not inherently belong to you because you have all of heaven backing you up. Mm. So I would pray that over the course of what we're saying, and I have to plead to people directly. I have to plead to you directly out there because you can't read what I'm saying without your emotions being invested. Mm. So maybe the spoken word will do. I don't know. Maybe it's not for you. Maybe it's for your children born after you that will undo all your angst. But what I pray and hope that'll happens is people come to terms with what they really see, that no matter who's in office, no matter what they're doing, you presently live in a free society. You may not like the free society in which you live. So now you have tools and processes in place to contribute to the change of that society. And that doesn't mean tearing it down piece by piece. But that certainly does mean impacting it in the way that you know how. And then the way that you know how is, I would argue, is education. Mm -hmm. You have to be educated. Before you can argue for change, you have to know how things work. It's so many people I see arguing for change from a paradigm of liberation theology, which assumes you don't know how things work. But if you know how things work, you know how to get them fixed. And if you don't know how to get them fixed, you probably need to stop alienating yourself from people who are actually offering solutions. And try their solutions. If their solutions don't work, you've lost nothing. But I I believe that we've come to a place of new slavery. It's a new enslavement. It seeks to enslave the mind because it cannot place shackles on your hand. And do you think that that's from the white man and his institutions and such and such? No. I think that it has more to do with the individual and it has certainly everything to do with the fall and everything to do with man's sin. And I'll tell you that liberation is not to deal with man's temporal standing in this life alone. Liberation deals with his standing before God in eternity. And so my plea before you today is that you would trust in Jesus Christ alone. You would repent of your sins. You turn away from your sins. You would turn away from this over obsession, this armchair activism that is just fueled with pride, hatred, frustration, self-imposed angst, let me be even more frank with you, political expediency disguised as urgency. Because this only happens every four years. But I tell you, you have to start thinking about not where things were, but where they're going and why people are doing things they do and I'm telling you I can't stop everyone from dealing with this emotionally but we can certainly reach a few who will find their voice and their courage and I pray that they do for those of you who listen to us and hate us for what we say I'll pray for you because that's a natural response to the natural man mm-hmm. but I'll also challenge you to do one thing look at what you've become you know there's people that I see on social media particularly in people I interface with personally, that they have reinvented themselves as activists. That I look at their lives and all of their friends used to be of another ethnicity before they found this expediency in their activism. And those of you who I'm speaking to, you know who you are. But what you're doing is hypocritical and you're hoping that no one will be able to pull your card on your pass. But I'm telling you, More than me seeing it, God sees it, the Lord sees it, and he's gonna judge every man according to their actions. You're upset that the police may have handled something that was unjust, God will judge them. God will deal with them. What is your fury and your rage gonna do if vengeance belongs to him? And when he repays, he repays it perfectly. And I'm not telling you to wait or ignore it, but what I'm saying is your expectation of what this world can accomplish is very low on all sides of the equation, but I'm speaking to those whom God may have elected unto this grace and salvation, that you have to have the courage before you to be able to look at things according to the scripture. Stop following society's trends. They told you to put those black squares so that they can gauge your, uh, they can gauge your interest for political and crowd control purposes. They don't ask you to do those things because there's real solidarity. That solidarity is even based on business pragmatism. Businesses are coming out and saying that they're for the black life, not because they're for it, for even the reasons that you may be for it. They're for it because they don't want you to smash their windows. They're for it because they want to continue their business. Right. What I'm telling you to be for the life is to advocate for the truth as it relates to that life. And that's, that's what we're doing. I'm for the black life in that sense, and I'm for every life in that sense. But what I'm not for is any ideology that's going to rewrite, try to rewrite history, try to alienate those who are trying to educate, and also try to raise all these worldly and fresh, fleshly borrowed arguments that are only filled with bitterness, that have nothing to do with actual progress. And so there's a stubbornness to this that has to be dealt with in God's timing. But I believe the first step is toward Uh, toward honoring what the truth says to those that we can be an encouragement to that have actually heard these things and you're going, that's not me. I'm contending for the truth. I'm standing up for what's right. I'm out here trying to make a difference biblically. I'm out here trying to educate people on how things actually function. Praise God for you. Keep doing it. The world's going to hate you even more for it. Mm -hmm. For young black males who may be seeing the truth of these things, they're going to call you an uncle Tom. They're going to call you a coon and a sellout and all these other things. For those who are against liberation theology, they're going to accuse you of only being interested, of, of interested in the uh, goals of the rich. But the accusations, if they're untrue and if they're not founded in the word of God, they do not stick. And so we need a, we don't, we, 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 we have no shortage of men who are emotionally charged, whether it be from their fluffy pulpits, or whether it be from their social media profiles, they're emotionally charged and they're arguing on the basis of those emotions, on the basis of constantly looping worldly arguments in front of them, be it on the news or be it on media platforms. But for people to actually open up the word of God and say, I can't stand with this. I can't stand with the things that are being said. I believe that they're out there. And I pray that the Lord will use our voice to embolden your own, no matter what we have to suffer, No matter what the consequences are for us, we only need but a few of you. So I'm not here begging for your financial support as so many pilfers and exploiters of God's word do on their social media platforms and other media platforms. I don't need your money. I don't need X, Y, and Z so that I can do what I do. Because we're not enslaved that way to any man. What I need from you is I need you to listen. I need you to open up the word of God and begin to study. Study the plight of Israel. Study the coming of the Messiah. Study the redemptive plan of God and salvation for those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I need you to study. I don't need you. I'm going to keep doing this for free because I don't need and I don't want your money. There's enough people trying to get your money. BLM's trying to get your money. The modern evangelical wants your money. I don't want your money. I want you. And I want you to open up the word of God and consider these things for yourself. And consider the fact that God's goal is not to liberate you from oppression. It's to liberate you from unrighteousness. Well, man,
0: (laughs) I started to go uh, walk over to the other room and go get the
1: organ and tune you up right there man a, f- a fitting clothes for our friends who are listening <laughs> yeah. and maybe those who are not so friendly.
0: <laughs> no nah, i felt that man I, I i felt that i i didn't want to interrupt that at all man because that was just that's why i tell you you do the final word because i know you can drive home what needs to be driven home and then oh, i can just say God, and then all i got to do is say ladies and gentlemen you have heard the truth Next week, we'll get into uh, James Cone and we'll get into his theology and how he took, basically took liberation theology and, uh, well, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Next week, we will do uh, part two of the key themes of liberation theology. we got four more things to do. And then the following week, we'll get into James Cone. And then the week after that, we'll get into uh, how the Black church uses black liberation theology, uh, I would uh, pretty much argue improperly, (laughs) as opposed to just as Duran said, studying the redemptive plan of God and just proclaiming the truth. And actually what that does to those who attend those type of churches, we'll get into that as well. And then we'll, uh, the following week after that, we'll really dig into some biblical passages of scripture. To, so that you can hear the unadulterated truth of how we are to be as citizens of the kingdom, uh, living in uh, the midst of a hostile society. Because as the Bible says, we are simply just sojourners here. Uh, we are just passing through. Um, but it doesn't mean that we just sit and do nothing at the same time. But we have to do things according to God's will, because as Duran said, as thy kingdom comes, thy will be done not what we think or what ideology we think we're supposed to use no pragmatism of what is supposed to work so we'll get into all of those things in the following weeks we pray that you would continue to listen to us again uh, you'll hear it in the outro but i did set up an email address so if you want to leave comments uh, questions feedback feel free to do so and we'll get back to you as soon as we can again this is a train of thought podcast for the biblical christ research institute pray that you have a blessed week thank you all for listening has been Train of Thought, a podcast of the Biblical Christ Research Institute. For our written articles, go to bcri.wordpress.com. And for sermons, go to SoundCloud and search Biblical Christ Church. For comments and questions, email us at Trainofthought at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.